I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're going to depart from our study of Mark this week and focus on John's account of the triumphal entry. Uh, We have looked at this a few weeks ago uh, from the book of Mark, so I thought we'd give John some equal time uh, this morning. John 12, we're going to read verses 12 through 19, and then we're going to skip over and read a few verses from chapter 19 as well. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are, going, you, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, if you'll flip over to uh, chapter 19, verse 14. It's just several days later. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He, he, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. When Leo Tolstoy was nine years old, he became convinced that God could give him the ability to fly, so he jumped out of a window. Now, thankfully, he did not kill himself in the fall because, of course, he was not able to fly. Uh, He eventually overcame his disappointment with God, and he later became a believer. Disappointment with God. Have you ever been, or maybe you are now, have you ever been or are now disappointed with God? because he did not meet your expectations, kind of like Leo Tolstoy. Obviously, most of you are not trying to fly and jump out of a window, but maybe God hasn't answered your prayers or given you the life that you desired. We were watching uh, Les Mis, the the new movie musical that that came out uh, this few months ago, and there's a there's a line that one of the characters sings that's so heartbreaking. Her name is Fontaine, and her life has just spun out of control, and, and she is absolutely in the dregs of misery. And she sings and says, I, I thought my life would be so different from this hell I'm living. Maybe you feel the same way this morning. Maybe you're even angry at God for the life 
that he has given you. How can, how can we deal with disappointment with God? That's the question I want us to consider this morning. And maybe you're not disappointed with God this morning and, and uh, you think, what does this have to do to me? But I, I guarantee you as you live this life, there will be times when you feel disappointment with God. So uh, this pertains to all of us. The people in Jerusalem ended up disappointed with Jesus. Uh, on one day... We read there that they were shouting to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They were so excited. Then just days later, they were shouting, away with him, away with him, crucify him. One moment, they were looking to Jesus to save them, and then the next moment, they wanted to kill him. Why? That always intrigues me. Well, I believe the reason is because Jesus did not meet their expectations. What were their expectations? Now we've already noted that they were shouting a portion of Psalm 118, which we read earlier. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Well, Hosanna means save us, we pray. So they're crying out to the Lord to save us. They're, they're calling on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, they say. They want him to save them. To save them from what? Now the crowd is correctly identifying Jesus as a great king. Uh, they would probably uh, rightly identify him as the Messiah or Christ. Those words mean the same thing. They both mean the anointed one. Now we don't anoint people with oil in our day and time, but, but back in Jesus' day and, and in, the, in the Bible times, anointing with oil was something that was done to set a, a person apart for a special place or function in the purpose of God. So kings were anointed. Maybe you recall when King David, uh, the, the prophet Samuel, goes to David and he anoints him with oil and declares him to be the next king of Israel. Kings were anointed. Priests were anointed. Prophets also were sometimes anointed. The kings of Israel were sometimes referred to as the anointed of the Lord, which literally means the Messiah of God, the Messiah of Yahweh. But these people uh, are looking for a very special figure promised in the Old Testament, the ultimate Davidic king, the, the Messiah. God promised David that his royal line would go on forever. And this promise is going to be fulfilled and is fulfilled in the person of the Messiah. The Old Testament teaches us that the Messiah is a person set apart by God, uh, anointed to redeem God's people and to bring judgment on the, the foes of the people of God. He's given dominion over the nations and in all his activities the real agent is God himself. So the Christ or the Messiah is the great deliverer. So the people, uh, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, were right in identifying as, him as the king, as the Messiah, as the Christ. Now you remember what we read in Psalm 118. Uh, it talks about the, the nations surrounding me. And in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. And you have this beautiful psalm going, which is talking about the steadfast love of the Lord, but then all of a sudden we're talking about enemies and cutting them down and victory over uh, those who would come against us. 
That's what these people were looking for. They were looking for a king to ride into Jerusalem and save them from the Romans, from Roman oppression. They were hoping that Jesus would cut off the Romans. You look at verse 17 in chapter 12. It says that the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. If you have the power to raise the dead, then you have the power to defeat Israel's enemies. They want a deliverance from the Romans. And so what is going on here in John chapter 12 is something of a political pep rally. They're excited about the king. They're welcoming him in. They want him to take control and wield his power on their behalf, on behalf of the nation of Israel, waving palm tree, palm branches like our children did today. Uh, the palm was a symbol of Israel. It's kind of like the, the bald eagle is a symbol for the United States. Because you can't wave a bald eagle around. But a palm tree, uh, I mean, you could, but it wouldn't have the same effect, would it? They were waving palm trees, kind of like waving a flag, a very nationalistic symbol, and the crowd was pumped up that day. So that's what's going on here. Uh, it's a political rally for the people of Israel. Now, the problem they had was that their scope was limited. They rightly understood Jesus as the Messiah, but the scope of what he came to do they saw it as a limited scope. They wanted a temporal, local deliverance. But Jesus didn't come to earth simply to fight Roman oppression. He had a much larger, more profound mission. When he was arrested and the people saw that he was not going to beat the Romans, in fact, the Romans had, had arrested him, and uh, you know, it looks bad for Jesus they quickly turn on Jesus and reject him. Crucify him, get rid of him. He's of no use to us if he's not going to do what we want him to do. Namely, get rid of this Roman oppression. But Jesus didn't come to do that. He came to do something much bigger. Now listen carefully to this statement. They, the people were expecting something that Jesus did not intend to give them because he was seeking to give them something so much greater. Let me say that again. They were expecting something that Jesus did not intend to give them because he was seeking to give them something so much greater. Could it be that we can sometimes be guilty of the same type of thinking of the crowds in Jerusalem, to have a limited scope. See, they misidentified their main problem. Their problem was not simply the Romans or, or any other political entity. Their problem was sin. Therefore, Jesus did not come to give them an immediate political deliverance. He came to deliver them from sin. And he did not come simply to be the king of Israel. He came up to set he came to set up an everlasting kingdom that encompasses not just a, a location on the earth, but encompasses the entire universe. See, he came for something much bigger than they could ever dream of, than they could ever imagine. 
And if they had understood the scope of Jesus' mission, they would not have rejected him so easily. They would not have been so disappointed and angry at Jesus. Why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on that day? They thought it was to defeat their enemies, the Romans. They thought it was to further their kingdom, Israel. And why did they get angry at Jesus? Because he did not do either of these things at that moment. Now, why do we get disappointed and angry with God? I would venture to say it's for the same two reasons. Because he doesn't defeat the enemies we think he should defeat, and he's uh, not interested in furthering our kingdom. So that's my two points. Number one, why do we get disappointed and angry with God? Number one, we get disappointed and angry with God because he does not immediately defeat our perceived enemies. What are your perceived enemies? Well, they might be relationship problems. They might be health issues or financial trouble. These are your Roman oppressors. You cry out to him, Hosanna, which means, oh, save me, I pray. Save me from my circumstances. But your main problem is not your circumstances, as horrible as they might be. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm insensitive when I say your problem is not your circumstances, but sin. I know that some of you live in very difficult circumstances. And, and those circumstances, in, in some cases, are not your fault at all. Maybe you're being sinned against by someone else. Other people's sin is a huge problem in your life. Some of you are struggling with diseases, and it's not because of anything you have done. It's not because you have sinned and you're being punished for something, for that sin. But all disease and death is the result of sin in general. The world is a broken place and is subject to decay and death since sin entered the world when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. So you see, all of our problems go back to sin, Maybe not our specific sins, but sometimes it is. But sometimes it's the sin of others. Sometimes it's just sin in general in a broken world. And sometimes Jesus will not deliver us from our difficult circumstances because he's doing something so much bigger in our lives and in the world. Our scope gets too small, and we can't see what Jesus is doing. And we want him to fix the problems that we encounter on a daily basis but he's actually fixing the problem that is much bigger than the one that we, that we are faced with here and now. He's doing something greater in your life and in the world. Sometimes he's freeing you from sin. He has delivered. He came to earth to deliver us from sin. He conquered sin on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin on the cross. But he's continuing to work in us to deliver us from sin. He's setting us apart and building character in us and making us more holy. Kind of like uh, refining gold. And the Bible uses this imagery over and over. When you take a precious metal and you heat it up and the impurities rise to the top and they're scraped away. 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or Job, you know, Job went through all the suffering 
that he went through. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And he did. Proverbs tells us, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold. The Lord tests hearts. Or Isaiah 48, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. It's easy to get angry when we're going through affliction and trouble and trial and difficulty and relationship problems and health problems and financial trouble, etc. These difficult circumstances weigh us down and it's hard to see uh, the forest for the trees. But that was the problem with the people of Jerusalem. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. They didn't even understand that there was a forest. All they knew was that there was a tree. They wanted deliverance from their oppressors. But Jesus was doing something bigger. And we have to have a broader scope to understand and not become disappointed and angry with God that sometimes he uses difficult circumstances to refine us, to make us more dependent upon him. I can't even go through all the purposes that God might have because who knows the mind of the Lord? Who knows what he's doing? But he is doing a great thing in this world and in your life. We just need to look at Jesus. Jesus never sinned, but he was not delivered from his difficult circumstances. Jesus is, has delivered, is delivering, and will deliver from sin. That's what he came to do. So if you are a Christian, your greatest enemies have already been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Hell uh, all the demonic activity in the world is, is nothing you have to worry about. Even death itself, the final enemy, is not your enemy anymore. It has been defeated. So when Christ came, he defeated your worst enemies. And if you're a Christian today, you don't have any reason to be angry or disappointed with God because life is more than just our time on this earth. If you're a believer, it's eternal. See? We tend to think temporal today, but Jesus is thinking for eternity. We tend to think locally, here, now. Jesus is thinking globally, even universally. You know, environmentalists have a pretty good bumper sticker slogan. Uh, it says, think globally, act locally. Of course, what they're saying is, you know, for the good of the planet, you know, if you think globally, you need to do something wherever you are. For, to further that cause. You need to clean up around your neighborhood or do what you can to be environmentally friendly. So it's a good slogan. Well, we think locally, but Jesus acts and thinks globally, even universally. He's going to renew the whole creation. He's going to renew hearts of people. Uh, he's building a people for himself, and he's going to put things back to the way they were supposed to be and it's going to be that way for eternity. And if you're a believer today, yeah, you may have health problems, you may have financial problems, you may have relationship problems, but you won't have those forever. It's guaranteed. Isn't that good news? That's something to sing about, something to bless the Lord about. So don't be angry. Don't be disappointed with God. Broaden your scope. Look at the bigger picture and trust the one who is power and wisdom. See, he, yes, he's got power to deliver you from your circumstances. He could put a million dollars in your bank account today. and Wouldn't that be nice? But that's not his agenda. He's got something bigger. 
He might have the power to do it, but he's got the wisdom not to. We went to the hockey match the other, uh, other evening, Friday evening, and when we were going back, Harrison, my son Harrison and myself, we were behind this nice new Camaro, and the, the tag said, Thanks, Dad, which was a really nice sentiment as a father. And Harrison said, uh, would you, if you did that, if you got me a Camaro, I would put a tag on there that said that. So would you give me a, get me a Camaro? And I thought, well, that would be a nice thing. To, you know, he asked me, would I do that for him? And I said, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know if that would be the best thing to do for him. Would be, I mean, he thinks so. But it might not be to just hand him something so expensive and nice and him not have to work for it or earn it. Or, you know, there are considerations as a father you think about with your children and whether you should just give them something or not give them something. And I thought about the Lord. You know, he is all wise. Yeah, he's powerful enough. Now, see, I don't have the power to buy him a Camaro because <laughs> I don't have the money to do that. But God's got the cattle on a thousand hills. He can do whatever he wants to. But he's also got the wisdom to say yes or no when it's in our best interest. And he's got our best interest at heart. He's doing something wonderful in our lives. So broaden our scope. Secondly, we get disappointed and angry with God because he does not further our own kingdoms. Some people are disappointed and angry with God because he, he hasn't met their agenda. Now, have you ever said to the Lord, Lord, uh, I do this and this and this for you. Why won't you do this for me? Why won't you give me my request? Or I'm a good person. I deserve better from the Lord than this. Or if you ever, have you ever said, Lord, if, if you'll get me out of this, I'll be certain to go to church every Sunday, or I'll tithe, or I'll do this or that. You fill in the blank with whatever it might be. What you're actually trying to do is manipulate God. Well, it cannot be done. You cannot manipulate God. If you try, you will certainly be frustrated, disappointed, and angry. You know, we have an agenda for God. We want God to give us what we think we deserve to further our kingdom of self. But that's not going to happen. The only way to have a relationship with God is to drop our agenda, get rid of all conditions, stop trying to manipulate the Lord. God is not your co-pilot. He only serves as the pilot. And if you invite him to be the co-pilot, he won't even get on the plane. He's God. You can't keep him in your pocket and pull him out when you want him. He's the king of kings. He rules over all or he doesn't rule at all. See, Jesus is doing something much bigger than your tiny little agenda. You've got to plug into his agenda. He's building an everlasting kingdom. He's not the assistant foreman to build your kingdom. He invites you to be part of his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 2.9 tells us, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We think, Lord, if you loved me, you would get me out of these circumstances. You'd, you'd change that person. You would, you would get me that job. But God's got something 
he's going to give us, and it's much bigger than any of those things. So don't place conditions on the relationship with the Lord. You can't know God as God when you place conditions on the relationship. You'll only become angry and disappointed. I saw this quote from Paul Tripp. Uh, if you, before Facebook friends, you may have seen it because I posted it there, but it says this. Faith is not telling God what you want and believing he'll deliver it. No, faith is God telling you what you need and you believe it. I love that quote. Faith is not telling God what you want and believing he'll deliver it. See, a lot of preachers today will tell you that. You name it and claim it. You just need to believe that you'll receive it and God will give you whatever you want. See, you've got an agenda and they're telling you that God's going to meet your agenda. And if you believe hard enough, you can manipulate God to give you whatever it is that your heart desires. But that's not faith. That's false. Faith is coming to God and saying, Lord, what do I need? Listening to, to him tell you what you need. And what he's going to tell you is that you need to be delivered from your sin. And then you believe it. Now, how can you let go of your conditions and trust him? How can you trust this God? If he's so big and powerful, how can we trust him? We just need to look at Christ. You know, Christ loved us without condition. He, he didn't say, you do this and this and this and then I'll love you. You fulfill this condition and that condition and that condition and then I'll go to the cross for you. Now what does Paul tell us in Romans 5? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us unconditional love he showed us how do we respond to that uh, if he loved us so much that he would suffer so in, in our place for us you can trust a person like that you can trust him with your life you can trust him to call the shots you can trust him to take you through the even the valley of the shadow of death what did what did david say i will fear no evil because your rod and your staff are with me they comfort me he knows that God is in control and he's placed his life in God's hands. He's not angry with God or disappointed with God because it's not going like he wants it to go. He's placed his life in, a, in the hands of a benevolent God who has his best interests at heart. I think Palm Sunday is a, a strange celebration in the church calendar. There are people shouting and, and we're, we're, we're even doing the same thing. You know, we're saying, blessed is he. They had something completely wrong in mind. Their words were correct, but what they were thinking was wrong. They thought he was going to deliver them from the Romans, and that's why they were shouting. But we shout it because he has already delivered us. It's the response of grateful, thankful hearts that we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King, the King of Israel, the King of all nations, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Jesus is someone to worship and serve, not someone with whom we should ever be angry or disappointed because his loving kindness is forever. Let's pray together.
Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us and save us, save us from ourselves, save us from trying to be our own lords and saviors. Help us to drop all of our conditions, to set aside our agenda, and to give ourselves completely to you. Lord, we pray that you would grant us repentance from sins, that we would turn from our sin, stop being rebellious, stop doing what we want to do, uh, and, and Lord, we pray that you would change us because we don't want to change. We find it difficult to change. We find it impossible to change. And we don't have the power to do it. If we had the power to do it, Lord, I'm sure you would have told us how to do it, but you didn't tell us how to do it. You came and did it for us. So, Lord, we pray that you would help each one of us here today appropriate uh, that, that which you have done for us, that which you have given for us, We pray that the gospel would change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.